You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. It's Rico Daily. I'm Adam Clark Estes. And if you caught yesterday's episode, you know that a bunch of world leaders are in Glasgow this week at the COP26 climate conference. They're trying to figure out how to pump the brakes on carbon emissions. We meet with the eyes of history upon us and the profound questions before us. It's simple. Will we act? Will we do what is necessary? Will we seize the enormous opportunity before us? Or will we condemn future generations to suffer? China is the number one polluter on the planet, and the United States isn't doing much better. It's second. The EU and India, they're up there too. But even if all humans stop putting carbon into the atmosphere in the future, we still have to answer an important question. Who's responsible for all the carbon that's already stuck there? You know, the stuff that's destroying our planet. The short answer is the rich countries of the world. Maybe even the shorter answer is the United States above all others. That's David Wallace-Wells from New York Magazine. He and our friend Sean Ramaswaram at Today Explained are going to take it from here. We have about... 2,500 gigatons of carbon that's been put up there, and about 500, a little more than 500, has been put up there by the U.S., which means this one country, the richest country in the world, is responsible for about 20% of all historical emissions, which all together are the reason we're in the bind we're in today. We're not in the bind we're in today because of India and China's future emissions, although we need to take care of them. We are where we are now because of what's happened in the past, because those emissions are still functionally heating the planet. And I think this sort of sets the stage for why you wrote recently a cover story for New York Magazine titled The Case for Climate Reparations. What's your case? I mean, if you take seriously and understand the way that historical emissions have really degraded and damaged the planet, especially in ways that are affecting the most vulnerable, who have also done the least damage, that implies a very clear to me moral responsibility of those who have gotten rich off of development powered by fossil fuels and who are now uh, much better prepared to endure the new world that they've made. It's like if a toxic chemical plant was dumping all of its waste down the river, you know, down to the next town, and that town was suffering all of these terrible health consequences of that pollution, an honest reckoning with who did the damage and who is suffering would suggest that that company, that industrial plant, was responsible for taking care of those who are bearing the burden of the environmental impacts that they've imposed on the world. At a very basic sort of philosophical level, we owe it to the people who've done the least and who are going to be suffering from the damage that we've caused. I think that's inarguable, unless you want to look at people in the global south and say that their lives just don't count or don't count nearly as much as ours. And and so specifically here, you're not just talking about a moral obligation or a moral debt. It, it sounds like you're, you're suggesting that there is a, a literal financial debt here. Is that right? What I was trying to do is to put a dollar figure on it. And the way that I did that is by talking about the fact that 
we have technology today that can take carbon out of the atmosphere. It's expensive. It's very energy intensive. We're not doing it at anything like the scale that we need to. But in theory, we could be using it at much greater scale that we didn't just neutralize the planet's remaining emissions, but sort of wound back the clock, taking carbon out of the atmosphere and allowing the whole climate to sort of restore itself to a pre-industrial level. And from that, I tried to work backwards and say, okay, if carbon removal of that scale is going to cost, most experts expect something like $100 a ton, that you take a ton of carbon out of the air, it'll cost $100. Then really all you have to do is multiply the number of tons that we've put up there by 100, and you get the bill. How big is it? The U.S. would owe $50 trillion. Wow. Globally, the entire bill would be $250 trillion, which is basically about half of all global wealth today. And that sounds like an enormous amount, right? Which it is, of course. But two things to keep in mind. The first is we've probably spent something like $25 trillion this year on um, pandemic relief. In the U.S. alone, we've spent about $10 trillion on pandemic relief. So we're talking about a total bill for the U.S., which is the world's biggest emitter. That's only five times um, what we spent on COVID. And we're talking about spending it over the course of a century or two. So it's in this zone of you know, enormously large, but it's also tangible. You know, I think it's quite unlikely that we undertake a a spending project of that scale in the near term. Mm -hmm. But I would like to think that we can start planning for it in the second half of the century, sort of as a next act beyond getting to net zero. Because once we have reduced most of our emissions, we're probably going to want to do something with all the infrastructure we've built to do that in order to go even further and make sure that, you know, if we land at two and a half degrees, that's not the permanent temperature for the future of human history, but we could actually rewind and get us back under one degree Celsius of warming, for instance. It feels like there are two massive hurdles to get over here with your plan. The extraordinary financial cost and the technology Let's talk about the technology first. Is carbon capture technology anywhere near where it needs to be to do something like this at the scale you're talking about? Well, those are sort of two different questions. There's, is the tech ready to do it? And is it ready to do it at scale? Mm. The answer to the first is yes. Here's how Climeworks system works. It's a box with a huge fan on one end and a filter inside that only attracts carbon dioxide. The fan sucks the air through the filter, and once the filter is saturated, the box is closed. It's then heated to 100 degrees Celsius, and pure carbon dioxide is released and collected. I mean, there are companies that are doing it for profit today. Um, Their costs are considerably higher than $100 a ton. The biggest one in in Switzerland is charging $600 a ton, $500 a ton. But experts expect that as this grows, that those prices will fall pretty predictably. Different companies all around the world are doing it in different ways and storing the carbon in different manners. And some are using it to produce zero-carbon jet fuel and other ones are putting it underground. Storage starts by pumping liquid CO2 into a carefully chosen reservoir. A suitable CO2 storage reservoir needs a layer of porous rock, at the correct depth to hold the CO2, sufficient capacity, and an impermeable layer of cap rock to seal the porous layer underneath. But the tech is there, it works, and we know that the storage will last forever, unlike some nature-based solutions like planting trees where we're dependent on the life cycle of the tree to store that carbon. Hmm. So if there's a forest fire, or if the tree gets cut down, or if there's some 
you know, beetle infestation, um, that carbon ultimately gets released. And these tech solutions, particularly direct air capture, which is one of the tools, are much more permanent. By injecting CO2 underground, we are in effect returning carbon back to where it came from. We're talking about billions of tons of carbon. The IPCC says that putting aside, you know, carbon restoration um, of the kind that I'm talking about, just getting us to zero, is going to require something like 10 to 20 billion tons of carbon being taken out of the atmosphere every single year in the second half of the century. Hmm. That's an enormous project. To do it at an even greater scale so that we reverse the damage will require even more. This is not something I think that there's really going to be a market for. It needs to be a, a public market. It needs to be you know, governments getting together and agreeing that this is a valuable thing to do. In terms of storage, just about everybody who really works on this stuff thinks that there's effectively no limit to how much we can um, store. It's a question of how much money we're willing to spend to take it out of the atmosphere and what the political and social willingness is to build out an, a sort of new industrial infrastructure um, to deal with this problem. It'll cost some money, but you really can do it. Well, l- let's talk about the money because that was my other big question. And and that seems like the other, you know, even more insurmountable hurdle here. I mean, it's a bit of an ironic time, of course, to be talking about how the United States can get together and drop maybe $50 trillion or or how the world could get together and drop something like 250 when you can't even get all the Democrats in, in the Senate on the same page or whatever. So, so how exactly do you get the world's richest nations and biggest polluters to commit to a spending plan unlike, I think, any the world has ever seen? Speaking practically, I think the case is really about time, which is to say, you know, we've heard a lot over the last few years about this timeline to cut our emissions in half by 2030. Um, that's really important. And we Also, we've been hearing more over the last year about getting to zero by 2050. That's also really important. But those timelines are relatively short. And so the, the kinds of things that we can mobilize and even imagine undertaking in those timescales are relatively limited because we have to erect them given the politics, given the political economy that we have today. But if you're talking about, you know, running some fleet of carbon capture machines in certain parts of the world to reduce carbon concentrations in the atmosphere from about 415 or 420 where they are today, maybe down to 350, which is understood to be a pretty safe level, or even to 280, which is where we were before the Industrial Revolution, you're talking about a project that could last 200 years. And spending $50 trillion over 200 years really is just a very different scale of spending than talking about spending $50 trillion in a decade. So whatever seems plausible or implausible today, you know whether that'll seem plausible or implausible in 2075 is a really big open question. Personally, I like to think of this as a sort of everything and the kitchen sink, all hands on deck kind of a situation in which carbon removal seems to me to play, at least in the long term, a helpful contributing role to like restore some amount of the damage we've done. And because I think it's possible, I'd like to think we can do it. And I think it is beginning to shape some of the geopolitical landscape. You know, at the uh, COP26 conference in Glasgow, um, you had a recommitment, at least, to this $100 billion a year climate funding that had been promised at Paris and never fulfilled. Um, Everybody's now saying that we're going to deliver that amount of money. But, you know, it's another helpful thing about calculating those numbers we calculated earlier, 50 trillion, 250 trillion. When you think it's like 
the rich countries of the world are promising 100 billion, it's a tiny fraction of, of, of the debt that we really owe. It's time to count the real costs and it's time for the polluters to pay. It's time to keep the promises. No more empty promises. No more empty summits. No more empty conferences. It's time to show us the money. It's time, it's time, it's time.